Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're back with episode 15. It's great to be back with you again. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. Lisa and Leanne, it's so nice to talk to you again after you both separately visited Canberra last week, which uh, I think is just your both individual acknowledgement that Canberra is the best city out of Canberra and Sydney. So it was so nice to see you both and, and your tacit acknowledgement of that. <laughs> Leanne, will we just let him live with his delusions? Yes. Well, all roads lead to Canberra, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> all roads lead to Canberra. So and it was a very... Very pleasant visit as well. Thank you, Liam. It was very nice to see both of you. And you can yes. head head to the Twitter page for um, the Early Education Show to see um, me standing awkwardly next to Lisa and Leanne separately. <laughs> but um, we're back for another week. But we, I wanted to start off as the top just a reminder. So next week we'll be doing a Q&A episode. So if you haven't had a chance yet, please uh, head to our Facebook and Twitter pages and, and click to the link to, to flick us a question. We'd love to to tackle any of the burning issues you're, you you feel we missed this year or just a specific question you have. We've already had some fantastic questions that we're looking forward to. But some of them we don't know the answers to, Liam. What if they keep asking us questions that are too hard? We just speak with authority, Lisa. You just pretend oh, like okay. you sound like you know what you're talking about. But it's really Liam, simple. I don't have a male voice. Oh, that's well, I can fix that in editing later, Lisa. That's all good. <laughs> Okay, I'll just kind of speak like this. I've got a filter for that. sound better. (laughs) (laughs) But um, we'll crack on as we always do with our sort of news of the week. And we wanted to touch... we wanted to touch on this this week uh, rather than sort of having it as a full topic, but it's the, the National Children's Commissioner every year releases a children's rights uh, report. So the Children's Commissioner is uh, Megan Mitchell, and she's released her annual uh, children's rights report, which is a statutory obligation to the government. And uh, we... We sort of debated doing this as a topic, but the focus there's a very there's very little in there that's sort of focused on that sort of birth to five space because the focus this year is very much on the youth justice and youth detention system, particularly after some pretty horrific reports coming out of things like the Dondale Detention Centre and uh, a few others. So it is. I think we just we just wanted to acknowledge and touch on it and and say there is you know some 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 tough reading in there. So Megan Mitchell's conducted an investigation into um, the. Youth youth uh, detention facilities and has found some not so fun stuff so we'll have a link to that we'll also include a link which Lisa tracked down which is kind of uh, sort of a child-friendly version of the report as well but um, yeah what well, Lisa you know Leanne did you it's it's pretty big so I don't think any of us have had a time to read the whole thing yet but you know what's your sort of thought on the focus this year? I think it's it's really needed. As you've said, some pretty horrible stuff has been coming out about youth in, in detention. And although it is all older than our usual age group, I'm hoping people are watching what's happening in that space because it is so important. But um, I just love the fact that she does it. Uh, it, it she publishes, you know, two reports. Um, one aimed at adults and one that breaks down what she's asking for for children. And I think, you know, signing that protocol that she's talking about would, you know, would be a good um, way to start off in improving things in that space. Yeah, this is the optional protocol against torture, which is part of the UNCRC. So it's it's a, it's sort of the bizarre sort of international bureaucracy. So Australia's, tell me if I get it wrong, Australia's ratified that protocol but hasn't um, enacted it. So they haven't passed that, legislation yeah. to basically yeah. say, yeah. That's right. 
and um, they're not, uh, yeah, they're not and being I, clear about whether they will do that, which is a bit worrying, that you're uncertain about whether you will pass legislation to ban torture of children. Mm. Yes, well, yeah, it should just be a given, shouldn't it? But I, I, I really like the way um, Megan Mitchell uses her... Just her position, I suppose, and I think it kind of aligns in a way when we see the other commissioners using their position. But I think she has, she's got such a wonderful connection with children, and I think that's really evident in the way that she frames things up, the sort of stuff around producing a report that is um, written for children as well. Um, but the absence of early childhood in it is, it's. I guess there were other priorities this year, but it really only highlights the aspects of the Jobs for Families package as not being particularly good for young children. So I think, yeah, it would be great to see a bit more on early childhood. Yeah, I think that's probably my only overall, because as you both know, I'm never completely happy about anything. My only overall, um, I guess, you know, slightly negative, and it's probably going back for the last few reports as well, is there hasn't been a huge focus on that birth to five space, which is disappointing for us. But what I will say is that the... The Children's Commissioner Office is, as with most of the sort of human rights stuff, aren't they? You know, they sort of run on the smell of an oily rag. The sort of investment and energy and effort that's required to do to work in that, to do sort of consultation and rights based stuff in that birth to five space is is tricky, and particularly to do it in non tokenistic ways, so to not just have, you know, cute, fun things with young children. So it is, and, and I can completely understand given the limited resources they need to focus on, you know, that older age group where children can talk and answer back and write in surveys and that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm hoping there is some way we could... I think that's why they're focusing on it. I think it's just there's, as you've said, there's so little resources. Yeah, that, but, but going back as well, yeah. But I think going back one... as well, yeah, it, it, even in the last two, three reports, and I'm, I'm, I'd have to go back and look at this specifically, there isn't a huge focus in that space. But there was one year, wasn't there? I'm sure I, I remember one that was quite... Yeah, and looked looked quite a lot at young children. She did the big, yeah, and I think the big banter. I, I think sorry, yeah, but I think it is the. I, I think that she has to also be quite selective to bring. Like, if you have too many issues in one <laughs> report like this, they'll lose their value. So I guess it's actually picking the one that you really want to make that big difference yeah. in in that year. And yeah. this is she certainly has this. She's year. done it right. Yep. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. So we'll thank you, thank you, Megan Mitchell. <laughs> thank you, Megan Mitchell. So we'll we'll include links to both the um, the full report and the uh, the um, the version for children as well in our notes for today. But we'll move on to uh, the main topic for tonight, and um, we're going to have we're going to have a big talk about STEM. So we this is sort of a bit of a buzzword at the moment in sort of all education circles, not just sort of early childhood education, but it's that sort of broad umbrella term for focusing on science, technology. English and maths, and we've got it. We're, we're I'm looking forward to having a big. Uh, oh, sorry, science, technology, engineering, and maths. What did I engineering, say? Engineering. That's right. English. But English. That's okay. It's, that's, yeah. that's my. That's my own <laughs> biases. Your preference. That's my own biases yeah. coming through. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to go there this week, but yes, it is engineering. That's right. <laughs> um, so, science, technology, English. Uh, oh God, engineering and maths, um, and. So we're going to talk about that as part of our first topic, and then we're going to move on to a special interview that uh, Leanne conducted um, as sort of our part two for tonight. So we've got a very uh, STEM-focused episode tonight, but uh, we might just uh, kick off as we do. So we've got a few questions we sort of just want to touch on and get through. But um, I guess given that we're talking in the birth to five space, and I think the focus in STEM has often been on uh, primary and secondary school, what, what, what place does STEM have in early childhood education and why do we need to be 
focusing on it. And I think we're, Lisa and uh, I both agreed, Leanne, you were turning to you as the expert tonight. So you get to, you get to have first crack at that question. Just the expert because I'm interested in it or just because, yes, I don't, I don't know that I'm the expert in it. But I, I guess in terms of STEM, it is, it's really grown in uh, focus and, it's, and I think that the focus has moved then to early childhood, which is great because I think wherever we're focusing on any issue in education, it doesn't matter what it is, if it moves into the early childhood space, I think that's excellent. So we can have some thinking around STEM. And I suppose with STEM, it has always been a part of early childhood education. So when we're saying, does it have a place in early childhood education? It always has been there. But I think, you know, we've got this buzzword around it now. And it's always been there in terms of the sort of water play that we do, the science experiments that we conduct with children, the maths, basic maths and algebra that we're introducing to children and that they um, acquire in their mathematics skills as well. And engineering, well, seriously, who hasn't seen Lego and Meccano and all of those sorts of things in early childhood settings. So it has always been there and it is its value, of course, is it's the foundation of um, all learning. It's the foundation of inquiry-based learning and problem solving. And so it has a huge place in early childhood education. So I don't think um, as the noted expert tonight, I've said <laughs> anything particularly smart there, um, but I'm sure that you have your own perspective on on whether it has a place in early childhood or not yeah i think it's you look you're absolutely right and i think it's uh, it, it always comes down to how is it enacted in early childhood centers which i think will be the, the rest of our discussion tonight is what's i mean the, the question for me is always sort of what's the difference in focusing on stem in early childhood than uh you know, you know let's look at primary where it's you know you sort of you you have maths and you have science as separate streams we definitely don't do that in early childhood education but i'll be yeah, as, as is now pretty clear during with my inability with my focus on with my saying english rather than engineering this is i'm i'm really bad at stem just personally let alone in terms of involving children in science and maths were probably my worst subjects in school um i'm fairly technologically well ipads and iphones anything with a touchscreen i'm fine with but otherwise not so great so but that's but that's stem that's stem Liam. that's true can twitter be stem because I, I, then i'm an expert <laughs> well that's what the t that's what the t's for that's true the science, st- science twitter, twitter english ideas. maths got it yeah that's um, right. <laughs> so i think it's so i guess i come from a bit of where i the move to the early years learning framework has sort of because I remember thinking back to prior to 2012 when we used to do our, you know programming in our boxes we used to have you know social emotional fine motor gross motor and we'd often have things like literacy or numeracy whereas those all those elements are still there in the curriculum work with in early childhood but it's much more of a focus now on holistic uh, uh, holistic approaches to those things and that the outcomes aren't focused on you know, the, one of the outcomes isn't, you know, good at STEM or good at maths or good at science. It is a more holistic approach to communication and um, and particularly inquiry-based work with children. So I think the big issue we're facing, we're facing at the moment is how, how do, something like STEM to me is quite focused and quite um, has a very specific approach in primary education to how that sort of uh, looked at and it's focused sort of as individual streams, whereas we don't do a lot of that in early childhood education. So, 
I guess, which we might work through tonight altogether, is how does that is that incongruous? Can we actually do STEM effectively in early childhood education? I don't know. What do you reckon, Lisa? Look, I'm um, I'm interested in three aspects of this. That, yep, three, not two, not but two. three. <laughs> um, these guys always tease me that I always say there's two things to this. Um, so I'm going to say three tonight. Three. I'm waiting. The, I'm waiting. the first one that I'm interested in is whether. As the ATAR for our teaching courses have dropped, um, whether we're attracting people into early education as educators or as especially as early childhood teachers who haven't done a lot of STEM activities at school. So that often, you know, if you're really great at um, uh, academic stuff, you get pushed into lots of maths and lots of science courses because they are the ones that will help you get higher ATARs in school, um, in your HSC. And I'm wondering if we're seeing the impact of uh, a generation of educators coming in that haven't had a lot of that kind of background at their, you know, in their own education, then finding it hard to deliver that kind of education mm. to children. So that's my first thing of interest, and I don't know whether that's true or whether it's not, but I can imagine that there would be a connection with between those two things. The other thing I'm interested, the the second thing I'm interested in is whether, in fact, people do a lot of STEM stuff, like the sort of stuff that Leanne spoke about, but don't think of that as STEM stuff. They don't think of what they're doing with children as science, whereas so much of what we do with children is science, but we don't call it that. Because what is science really than helping amass knowledge about the world? And that's what you're really doing with children at all times. So just whether the actually calling it something like STEM puts people off because, like Liam, they go, I'm not good at this. Because somewhere along in little Liam's background, someone told him he was good at English and not so good at STEM. And I think that person also had a go at my background as well because I'm not good at those things either. But the other part of it that I'm really interested in the is in the gender differences in um, STEM uh, in our early education services because we know that um, uh, educators tend to ask different questions of boys and girls so that um, the ones that I've seen is phrases such as he has two eyes or how many feet do you have appear nearly three times more in educator and, and mother as well conversations with boys or with sons than educators and, um, uh, with, and mothers with daughters. So people are questioning doing that kind of um, STEM questioning with uh, with boys more than girls. Mm. Why? Well, I'm not I, sure. But yeah. 
Yeah, um, I I actually wish you'd stopped it too because I'm very interested in what you were talking about the second the second one there. I don't really wish you'd stopped it too, but I like the um. I, yeah, I just Jim, wanted to go back to that. Yeah, of course, because, you never want to talk about gender, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I love to talk about gender, Lisa Bryant, but I um, but I I think you're exactly right. That's exactly the point about um, science and maths and and those. Um, you know, engineering, technology, they are such a huge part of inquiry-based learning that children take part in, in or, you know, uh, invested in in early childhood that we don't always um, sort of know that it, that's, you know, that it's science or that it's maths or whatever. And a lot of my uh, early childhood training was around creating experiences for children to explore things like floating and sinking, um, the sort of things around movement, physics, all of those sorts of things. And so it it really is that foundational um, area. I think that it would help us to focus more on it being science and maths because I think then we can tell that story about that being the foundation you well, know, mate, and, and give that grasp, sorry, to... to um, to families that this is the foundation of their learning in these areas and they will benefit from from having this play-based problem solving and so on. And bringing that very point back to gender yet again (laughs) is that research has proved that perceived competence at um, maths and science in kindergarten is already there so that by the Mm. time children start school, the boys have a greater willingness to learn maths than girls. They have a greater willingness to do science because they already believe by kindergarten that they're a bit better at this. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I think, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm trying to interrupt both of you, but I think we had a good segue there to the second sort of part of our discussion tonight, which was sort of that question, should, should the work we do in early education, should we have more of a curriculum focus and, and particularly look at preparing children for, uh, for primary school? And I guess we want to talk about this particularly in the context very, very timely as we record this of the PISA results, which, um, which came out. So the sort of international uh, education rankings for uh, countries in a wide variety of areas, including the STEM areas, which has not been terribly good for Australia. Uh, so we've, we've. Can I answer this one really quickly <laughs> oh, before the end? I just want to say no, they shouldn't, because it shouldn't prepare children for school by having subjects, because schools shouldn't have subjects either. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anarchist okay. Lisa, thanks for your view. All right, okay. Um, yeah, so uh, what I would love to say at this point is I've got about 25 things to say about the results. <laughs> but I, I kind of want to go backwards and I'll, I'll try to be quick on this because I, I can get a bit carried away about PISA. So with, with our PISA results, we seem to be very low in our areas of science and, and uh, I think particularly maths we've done very poorly in and we have gone backwards. I understand Victoria hasn't, but we better not tell them that, you know, they're, they're better. Um <laughs> But the thing about PISA is what, what people get quite confused about is it's not an academic test. It's it's a test that's agreed to internationally. Countries run it for themselves. ASA runs it for it, us here. And it is actually about their capacity to problem solve and to understand how to 
um, get to solutions. There's things like financial literacy in the world. There's all of, all of these sorts of things. So when we're talking about this testing, we're not talking about academic testing. And the big reason why we are not doing well in PISA, despite the fact that Simon Birmingham was very stern on the radio this morning <laughs> and said that we're putting so much money into education, but it's obviously not getting the right results, is because our curriculums are content-driven. They are not problem-solving driven. Yeah. They're not inquiry-based learning driven, which is what we have in early childhood. And therefore, that, that I mean, this is me. I'm just so knowledgeable in this. <laughs> I'm just going to tell us what we need to do. But we need to stop with the content. We need to stop with the crazy HSC and the way that it's just about rote learning. And we need to get get into this, you know, much more strongly right throughout. And that's why we have to push a play-based inquiry-based curriculum in well, programming and planning and in early childhood. And I agree, Lisa, it should not be curriculum-focused because as soon as we start teaching content, we've gone down the wrong path. That was a in much a... more technical way of saying it than what I did. Good <laughs> on you. That sounded like it was a, a literate way of saying it. End of rant. It's just, it just <laughs> makes me so angry to see children bored throughout their whole of their school lives because we're just ramming content down their throats. Yeah. And, and you know, children know much more than teachers do. So teachers would be in a much better position to facilitate their learning rather than to try and teach content. Yeah, absolutely. I agree entirely. Because the only thing I'll... The only thing I'll sort of add to that is just kind of something you said, Lisa, earlier, Lisa, which was that, you know, all this stuff is in the work we do anyway. Like, all right, you know, as soon as a child, you can't, children can't not learn this stuff. So it all comes down to the quality of the learning and, and I guess how intensive it is. But where I think we need to be really careful in the early childhood space is to not just leave it at that point. So it is not to say, well, you know, they're here, they're, of course, you know, they're developing all that stuff there. You know, we have you know, posters on the wall and, yes, of course, they're going to count that stuff. Like there has to be – I think we need to be proactive in the early childhood space because what I'm hoping is that the what what everyone is saying about – well, not sorry, not what everyone is saying, but what the, you know, the, the uh, international evidence is starting to shift that if we want to change these results, if we're not happy with them, we need to actually focus more on the early childhood space as well as doing all the things you were saying, um, Leanne and Lisa, which is changing the way we actually do – you know, curriculum and do uh, those streams in primary schools, but look at what are we doing in the early child space? And I think this is a really good yeah. opportunity for advocacy in the early childhood space to actually do some proactive work on this stuff because it's not, in my view, it's not good enough to just have, well, they're young children, they're sponges, they're going to soak it up anyway. Be proactive, be targeted, talk about how you do, um, even if calling it things like, and look, people get a bit icky with titles and people are, are, a bit scared of overlaying too much of a set curriculum stream in early childhood, but even talking things like pre-literacy and pre-numeracy and giving children the skills to problem solve and be inquiry focused and giving children a curiosity about their environment and creating environments for learning, but not just what I sometimes get, uh, what I sometimes hear is that is just, well, you know, they'll be fine it's just that they're in the space and children and they learn and we don't really have to do anything no we still have to that's that's true and children are naturally curious and will naturally want to learn but not every child is the same we need to make sure we're focusing on the children who can most benefit from a greater um, investment of our time energy and effort in that space but making sure we're being proactive not just in the program levels and not just within 
uh, not just doing our jobs and, and helping children with those things, but that's the really ripe area for advocacy, I think, we can talk about. Yeah, I know, we, we, yeah. we could say we've been banging on about this for decades. We, we do this really well in this space. We can. And also, um, that's exactly your point about advocacy. The rep from ASA who was speaking about this this morning was she actually mentioned early childhood. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't picked up but it's something that we can definitely pick up with regard to these outcomes. But I do think it's very important that everybody gets their head around PISA because there's some fantastic things in it. um, And I think Lisa will attest to me having ranted on about it for some time. But it's actually about countries learning from each other. So one of the focuses is that they'll share their their um, strategies and their approaches and try to look at how we can make um, changes and improvements and, and improve our education system. So it's really not supposed to be, oh, you know, you're you're doing better than Slovenia or whatever. It, it, and we might put a few links in actually to some of the little um, videos which talk about PISA because it's supposed to be actually the greatest collaborative space for international growth of of knowledge around education. It's not supposed to be individual education ministers defending the amount of money that they're spending or or banging on about it. So it's, you know, it does have such great possibilities, but I think you're absolutely right, Liam. We need to use it for our advocacy efforts. I think it's um, important to remember, Leanne, that the furor about this actually started from the TIM study. That's the Trends in the International Maths and Science Study, um, which uh, the results of that study, and that it's a kind of qualitatively different um, way of doing it than PISA, showed that um, Australian children hadn't done any worse in, in maths and science than they did last year or the year before, in fact, since 1995, but every other country's results had improved. So because of that, we slid down in the rankings of that. And that just proves again that we need to be starting earlier and doing more in the space. Mm. Get on to it, advocates. (laughs) <laughs> um, so we our sort of final thought um, sort of topic question around this area for tonight was um, what are the sort of what's the place of I guess uh, public spaces so things like museums and um, discovery spaces for children what are the so separate to the formal sort of education side of things what are the what about you know sort of civic and public participation spaces you know what how do they work and are they good and I might just you know do a quick shout out here for um, for Questacon in the ACT, which is you know a bit of a science institution for for many decades, and they have a fantastic area called MiniQ, which is um, actually specifically focused on that birth to five space with young children. So, I think there is a huge part to play for these kind of um, for these kind of places. And I'm going to leap in and steal what I think we all thought was a fantastic initiative in Victoria, which was the uh, uh, the Melbourne, so I'm going to get it wrong now, but the Melbourne Museum basically, um, the Melbourne Children's Museum, sorry, uh, has awarded everyone born or fostered in 2017 automatically gets a membership, which I think is just such a fantastic, easy mm. thing to do to encourage sort of children's participation in those kind of things because that's, I think, where you can particularly do those things that spark curiosity and um, and uh, an interest in those kind of spaces. But I mean, I doubt the two of you are going to disagree, but, you know, do you have any sort of specific examples or, or what's your sort of individual view on that? 
Um, oh, look, I think that's fantastic, a great gift. And anything that encourages children into those public spaces and, um, you know, giving them an opportunity to explore and uh, be in a in something that's actually been developed especially for them, I think is wonderful. What a great initiative. For sure. And I I um, uh, really liked the fact that they consulted widely with really young children before setting that up as to what they actually wanted and they discovered that things like mirrors and stuff were really exciting for children. So mm. I think that's a good way to set up something that, um, you know, works for children. And I think the other thing that's fantastic, sorry, and the other thing that's really fantastic for me is that it's about, in a really small way, levelling the playing field because I think there's a risk in that, you know, only children of well-off families might be able to afford the day out to go to these spaces. And even some of the ones mm-hmm. that are free, that's the, you know, the cost of getting out there, there's the cost of food. Like this is, and it, this can be really prohibitive for people. And I think one of the things that's easy to forget living in Canberra is a lot of this stuff's just easily within reach. You know, we have the, you know, the National Gallery, the Portrait Gallery, Questacon, mm-hmm. um, all yeah. sort of in the one strip. And it's not that hard to get to on public transport. And that, I think, you know, makes a big difference, I think, to the type of things we see in research and data, which shows that, you know, generally children in Canberra were more well off and, and perform better sort of academically. So anything that sort of levels a playing field in that space, I think, is a is really important to target the children who most need access to these kind of spaces. Yeah, and my, my favourite is the Early Start Discovery Space at um, the University of Wollongong, which is uh, apparently the only dedicated children's museum, but I think Victoria is probably giving it a run for its money. And um, it is uh, it was set up by the Abbott, well, it was funded by the Abbott Foundation, $7 million worth of funding went to the establishment of this, and it is just a super fun place to take children, super fun place for families to go to. And there's just so many different things to discover and and learn there. Uh, A very joyful, wonderful discovery space. Yay. I don't actually have a a space that I like because, I don't know, I'm not good at science and maths and things, so I didn't tend to take my children to any of those kind of places because, (laughs) you know, I took them to libraries because I liked reading and books and things. Um, But uh, I just wanted to ask you two what you thought of the new apps that are coming out, um, the STEM apps that have been um, uh, funded by... Well, they're being produced by the University of Canberra for um, early education services. Yeah, look, I, I think it'll be interesting. I think, uh, you know, any any app that's sort of taking children into this technological world and unpacking these things, I guess it'll just be, it'll depend on how it's how it actually is um, realised in in the early Practice. childhood space yeah. and how it's yeah how yeah. it's used. And I have to declare it. So the, so I have to declare a slight interest that the organisation I work for is taking part in that um, that sort of program. But my my view on it is, look, I think it's uh, pretending that there hasn't been this huge shift in the way we consume um, everything we do, that there isn't this big shift to mobile tablets and app-based stuff is, is insane if we're not teaching children... And, and as you said, it all, it's always going to come down to how it's done. It's not just, you know, nothing is a good or bad thing in and of itself. It's always how it's used. But, you know, the mm. the children's ability to engage with this stuff, it'll be, it's it's going to be the new literacy of, of you know, the next five to ten years. It would be like not 
you know, teaching children how, you know, to use computers 10 years ago or, you know, 500 years ago or however long, you know, not did that saying that, oh, I don't know about this uh, printable moving text. We better not engage with that. We, we we have to, but we have to make sure we do it in ways that support children's rights and, um, and is conducted in ethical ways. And I think the more of these kind of studies and things that engage in that space, the better. Yeah, and, and I, I think, think that the, they're designing them in that way. And from what I read, they said that they'd, you know, allow children to kind of go straight into play, come back and connect with the app and then go back into play, like to use it as a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that it is really essential that um, educators engage in professional development that relates to these apps so that they can be really... Um, you know, cognizant of how they work and how they can build children's um, capacity to use them and engage with them as well. Yay. Well, so that's going to wrap up our discussion. We're going to take a quick break in a second, come back with an interview that you conducted, Leanne. Do you want to give us a little bit of a background on that interview before we we cut over? Yeah, sure. So this is is actually another project that has been funded, uh, not isn't like the um, the STEM app, it's, it's a, but it is part of this kind of funding that was put out at the same time. And this is being, uh, it, it's, it's a program that is being delivered by a group called Little Scientists, which is under the, uh, sitting under Froebel Australia at the moment. And uh, it's a program that came from Germany. I think there's some extraordinary number of children that have engaged in the Little Scientists program in Germany and this is now being funded for four million dollars over three years in Australia and it's based it's problem based the problem solving inquiry based learning and it is also about a train the trainer model so the little scientists um, team aren't getting out there and delivering all of the training they're creating these local network partnerships some people may already be involved in them because they have been up and going for a couple of years. This funding is just relatively recent. So the interview talks um, about this and I speak with Sibylla Seidler from Little Scientists about this project and how it's going to roll out over the next three years. Fantastic. And thanks for doing that, Leanne. But we will take a very quick break and we'll be back with uh, Leanne's interview. So stay with us. Well, I'm here with Sibylla Seidler and we're going to talk about the Little Scientists program, which is going to be rolling out, well, it already is rolling out across Australia, but it's really going to ramp up soon. So maybe you can um, start by telling us about Little Scientists. So the Little Scientists, we're all about STEM education in the early years. We really believe that children have so much natural curiosity that... um, they really thrive on, on their own curiosity. They thrive on finding things out and asking one big question, which is why. They ask why all the time, don't they? And at Little Scientists, we take this question and we work with the educators. We really want to empower early childhood professionals to work with those children, work with these big questions, and in a sense work with the children in not answering the question. Instead, mirroring it back and kind of going like, so what do you think? Why do you think it's raining? Why is the, the rain disappeared or why has the water disappeared? So kind of like work with the children and take them on this inquiry-based journey. 
So it's got a really strong uh, philosophy and pedagogy that sits beneath it, which is really um, very, uh, you know, commensurate with early childhood uh, education as it stands in Australia now, which is fantastic. You've just received a grant from um, the federal government. Can you tell us about that and how that's going to roll out? Yeah, so that's um, that's been amazing. It's been really a journey for uh, early childhood, I must say, in Australia. We believe that in the last one and a half years, really, it's, it's STEM education, so science, technology, engineering and maths, and the recognition of early years education, that it's actually education, what we're doing, has really ramped up and, and uh, gained momentum. And so we were lucky enough to be recognised with our programme, Little Scientists. Uh, they have recognised, or the federal government has recognised the significance, and we have received, uh, through the National Innovation and Science Agenda, we have received a grant of $4 million, which will enable us to nationally roll out our programme over the next three years. So that's very exciting. So we're going to be seeing little scientists in every state um, across Australia, which is fantastic. And you have some partners in those states. Maybe if you can give a little bit of a history of little scientists to talk about the background to it and where it began. So it all actually really began in Germany 10 years ago. So little scientists um, has been in Germany for 10 years. It all started with... Um, uh, some savvy businessmen actually having, um, you know, like being um, altruistic and having some money and thinking about where can we put this money. And they thought it all starts, and rightfully so, it all starts with the, the young children and those inquisitive minds. And they thought about what else is, it was in their key interest, and STEM education certainly was. And so they kind of like put those two things together and uh, created what is called House Decline Fortune little scientist house foundation in Germany. So they've been around for 10 years. They have reached more than a million children now. It's the largest early childhood initiative in the STEM sector in Germany. So it's a fantastic, successful story. In Germany, uh, in Australia, we've been around for roughly three years now. We've been lucky enough that Froebel, who is one of the largest early childcare providers in Germany, so they have more than 150 services um, or centers in Germany, they knew the program and the success of the program in Germany and when they came out to Australia they kind of like thought this is a great bonus you know this is something that doesn't exist here yet so let's see that we can you know like get more children and get the children of Australia to benefit here as well. From science learning and, and for just for that engagement of curiosity at that and, and also for the future, obviously, for the future scientists mm. and for the future thinkers that, that um, we will, of course, need up ahead. Can you um, tell us about the way the model works? So it's not, you're not going into services and delivering science programs to children. It works in a different way. So if you could describe how that, how that works. Yes. So we basically, what we do is um, we have a, we empower the early childhood professionals we do this like we're too small a team to kind of crisscross Australia and, and teach every single um, early childhood educator. So what we're doing is we have a train-the-trainer model. We build great network partnerships with um, different organisations that can be education care service providers, it can be city councils, it can be universities. And they become our network partner, they appoint a trainer who then comes to our train-the-trainer workshops. We hold them all over the country at the moment um, with a bit of a base um, in Sydney. And we have different modules, different workshop modules. So our foundation workshop is really exploring water. And then after that, the educators can go on to their own learning journey and put the different kind of like modules together, 
however they see fit or however the interest really lies with their children and their service. So we have other modules as well, and they include engineering, light, color, and vision, air, and every year we will like consecutively kind of bring two new workshop modules out. So currently we have mathematics and the human body in the pipeline. So this is what our team is working on, and that's going to be released in 2017. And the pedagogy is around inquiry. It's not about teaching specific content in those areas, is it? It's about working with children in their natural curiosity, their inquiry and their power that they have to, to engage in science, isn't it? Rather That's correct. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the children that actually lead the inquiry. They lead the investigation here. Mm. Um, so it's all about empowering the educator and enabling them to kind of hone into those questions and then to kind of actually take a step back and kind of say, as I described earlier, kind of ask question, what do you think, you know, mm -hmm. and then go onto this discovery journey with the children. So we believe that this kind of intrinsic and inquiry-based learning for the children, that's really like where the knowledge and the experience actually is going to stick. So it's not us as adults or as educators telling the children, it's the children asking the questions and finding out themselves. So facilitating that Absolutely, yes. Um, you've got some big plans for uh, things like events and competitions and conferences up ahead. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, we have a very busy three years ahead of us. Um, so we have a couple of um, events planned that will they will always pop up every year. So we're very um, heavily involved, I guess, in the National Science Week. This is such a great event. So there's events in every state and territory in Australia, in every little community. You will find something that is of interest um, to you as an educator, to you as a parent, as a family, and to your children. So I really strongly would encourage people to go out and, and find the events in their area. So National Science Week, we also link with Little Scientists Day because we want this experience of everyday scientific exploration. We want this embedded in, in our culture in our society. So we have the Little Scientist Day where we encourage our little scientist educators to invite the, their communities, the, the parents um, of the children in their services, the wider community, invite the press, invite your local member of parliament to come along and actually see the great work that you do as educators. That is one thing. Then we also are planning a national Little Scientist Science Educator Conference. So this is for the little scientists, educators that have gone through or are participating in our workshop modules, we want to bring this community together. There's so much knowledge, there's so much passion, and we don't want this to be insular. You know, we want to celebrate this. And that is one event that we're planning for September next year. It's probably going to be held in Melbourne, so watch out. <laughs> watch this space. Great excuse to go to Melbourne. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, there's so many great things um, to do in Melbourne as well. So we will include this as well. You know, like bring the family. Cause Part of the cultural program. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Bring the family along. You know, like um, there's some good stuff going on. Um, other things. We are, we held like a little trial in a sense, um, science competition already this year. Um, that was kind of like based around Sydney, the Hunter Valley or Newcastle Hunter and the Illawarra. But we dream big and we're going to make this big. So we're thinking to take this national science competition in the early years. We're going to take this national. And that's our plan for 2018. Mm. 
So we invite all education and care service providers, all early learning centers across the country to participate. Because very often we hear, I'm, I don't do science, I was very bad at science. That's not what this is about. You'd be surprised how much science, everyday science, you already implement in your centers. And take these kind of like little projects and celebrate them. So we will kind of like invite the centers to kind of like send us those, those projects or send us their ideas. There's going to be obviously like a set of criteria around it. And then we're going to have our state winners and then, you know, take it to the national level. Very exciting. So a few um, key, you know, events that you have on the, the plan, apart from the ongoing professional development that little scientists will be running. So um, you've got some fairly um, uh, ambitious targets about reaching educators and reaching children over the period to 2019, I think. What are the numbers of educators that you're hoping to reach in that time? Yeah, we're, we're very ambitious, <laughs> but we have some fantastic network partners and we're looking for more network partners. So if you are someone who would like to come on board, by all means, um, check us out on littlescientist.org.au. Um, our, our numbers are really, um, if everything goes according to plan, um, we would like um, 7,000, more than 7,000 early childhood educators to have run through our workshop modules by 2019. So that's a huge number. When you twist that and, and, and or turn that and you look at it in terms of children reach, children in early learning settings, we're looking at about 20% of all children in Australia that are part of an early learning um, setting we would like to have reached. Fantastic. So that's 20% of children in early learning settings who are engaging yes. in science at least 20% because yes. that, that will be sort of generating greater numbers as well as, Absolutely. as, as Absolutely. children. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for talking to the Early Education Show, Sibylla. And what uh, we'll do is put the details up on our Early Education Show website so that um, people can uh, have a look at how to get involved in Little Scientists and perhaps think about setting up a local network partnership in um, 2017. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. All right, we're back. We hope you enjoyed that uh, discussion of STEM with uh, the Little Scientists team. Thanks for bringing us that, Leanne. Um, we will now move on to our recommendations for the week. So, Lisa, why don't you kick us off today? Okay, well, I, I've gone completely rogue here and I've done one that's not really related to early childhood. That's not, <laughs> so unlike that's you, Lisa. Nature. So unlike you, Lisa. <laughs> I've done one that's not related to early childhood directly. And the reason I've done that is because I've spent the entire week drowning in early childhood reports and I couldn't pick one out of that. There was so many that I was reading that I just went, no, I can't do this. So I've chosen one that's from the Book of Life, um, the, which I won't go in and tell you all about uh, about how it comes, but it's a, called The Sorrows of Colleagues. And it basically just says, look, no, it, it's a little bit focused about working in an office, but it says, look, no matter who we work with, it's really hard to work with people in a workplace, you know, um, because it's such an unnatural thing. You've all been chosen for your skills and what those skills will add to the organisation or the company that you're working for. 
and really it's hard to get on with people that you don't naturally, you know, like join in in some way. And I think this is really important and really um, it probably isn't spoken enough about in early education and care that a lot of people are working in very small workplaces with people that basically give them the shits. And I think that we do quite well in how we manage those relationships in some centres and possibly not as well as in other centres. And I just think this gave me some good insights about um, why it's so hard and how to kind of manage some of them. Mm, I'll send it out to my colleagues because I know I'm impossible to work with, so that might help them out. I'm sure you would be really horrible. Yeah. (laughs) I actually met a few of your colleagues uh, last week, Liam, and they all seem to like you very well. Ah, they're all (laughs) pretending. I slipped them 50 before the event. But, um... uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I think that's a great one, Lisa, because you're so right about this and, and, and the, the closeness with which we work with our colleagues in early childhood is, yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I think that's a great one. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Lisa. What have you got for us, Leanne? Um, well, I was a bit cheeky and I put two in. One was they're <laughs> both, maybe they're both tongue-in-cheek. Um, one of them was actually about the STEM uh, topic and the reason why I put it in, um, it's it's from the states that says STEM education must start in early childhood. And in actual fact, I thought they gave lots of reasons why it shouldn't because um, it was really talking about pipeline, you know, the, the the pipeline for scientists and how we needed to get them early and develop them. Um, and I I think I wanted to make the point that STEM in early childhood has to be about the here and now for children. It's not just about turning um, children into scientists, engineers, mathematicians, whatever. It's it's for the here and now as well as for the future. So I, I think I just wanted to make that point about the STEM topic. I think I've but, heard those words before once or twice, Leanne. Perhaps, perhaps, yes. And the, um, and the other one that I chose, which I loved, was a year in review and it's um, – from an advocate in uh, New Zealand. And I thought it was really actually quite uh, appropriate if we talked about this for Australia as well, because he did start out by talking about all of the great things that 2016 could have been noted for in New Zealand, but the most remarkable achievement was about political management because the government had somehow managed to reduce per child funding year after year and journalists and parents hadn't really noticed. So I thought it was a, a great one to think about in terms of our advocacy as well and the understanding that governments do this sort of stuff by stealth and we, you know, we don't notice. I mean, I think we always do, but <laughs> we don't notice and, and they do get away with it. So I think that's an interesting perspective from New Zealand as well. Oh, thanks, Leanne. Yeah, we'll, we'll allow you to get away with two because they both sound pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, mine's a quick one, and What's I. What's yours? Oh, I didn't. I didn't stay up till midnight to get this one away from you, Leanne. But I do, I've done an Atlantic article, <laughs> and I did quick. I added this to the running sheet very soon as I saw it because I was worried that you might steal one of you might steal it away from me. But um, exactly. <laughs> but this is yes, it's an article in the Atlantic, um, and it is. Uh, it's called the playground where babies learn to talk. Uh, and sort of following on, I guess, from that discussion we had about the importance of public and civic spaces, uh, this is a, a, a 
project and a um, by the advocacy organisation Too Small to Fail, which uh, is uh, funded by primarily by the Clinton Foundation. And what they do is they place these um, boards that encourage uh, adults and to talk to children and and work to that to, to sort of close that word gap which we've talked about before, which is you know well off, highly educated um, families. Uh, talk far more to their children and about far more complex words and sentence structures than uh, children and children living in poverty. And uh, it, it's, I, I think I just loved it because it's such a concrete way to, um, to, to sort of introduce those concepts. And, and, and again, it's that level playing field, you know, that. Um, yeah, yeah presuming of course that people can actually read the boards. Yeah. And look, and it, it, it talks about that in the article and they're very visual. So they're very much focused on, um, uh, allowing even you know adults who are suffering from low literacy as well to still engage with them and and oh, that's good. yeah and given the American context as well a lot of them are in Spanish and um, other yep. languages as well so the, the the article sort of acknowledges it's not it's not the solution it's bit it, it can only be part of a solution but um, yeah I, I like these kind of these concrete ways I think we talk and talk and talk about this stuff and we're you know very good at getting on our high horses about you know, the word gap and that kind of stuff. And I like these sort of concrete approaches to we can actually sort of see something and uh, being utilised in, in spaces like playgrounds. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, how that sort of project continues and what the research says at the end of it. Hmm. Yes. Well, you, cool. And you can have that one this week, Liam. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, when does the next issue of The Atlantic come out? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, the problem for you guys is I'm going to be in New Zealand, so I'm going to be getting oh. things first. I'll get them before you because it's earlier over there. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we need to explain s- some STEM We need some STEM. There. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will begin to wrap up. So I just wanted to remind uh, everyone as well, if you're enjoying uh, our chats, if you get a chance to rate and review us on the iTunes store, we would be eternally in your debt, It, um, as well as uh, making us all feel chuffed and proud. It helps uh, other early childhood people find the podcast. And if you get a chance to share it with your colleagues, you can do that as well. Um, I'd like to say a big thanks to Emily Hughes this week, who's left us a wonderful rating and reviews, and said that uh, she's uh, she likes our sprinkling of humour and sarcasm. And um, she says that the discussion is um, engaging even to millennials like her, which made us all feel both happy and, and old. And her husband, who's not in the sector. What is... She likes it so much she forces her husband to listen to it. <laughs> you might want to check him. Is he actually enjoying it, Emily? Because listening to the three of us, if you've got no background in early childhood, I can't imagine a worse fate for anyone. But if you but if he's enjoying it, go for it. So thank you very much, Emily. The things you do for love. The it's things you do. Um, thank, thank, thank you, Mr. Well, Emily. I just want to say hi to Emily's husband. Yes. <laughs> well, Emily, Mr. Emily, if you get a chance, don't forget to send us a question. So if you want to send us a non-early childhood question, uh, please go for it. So again, head to our Facebook early uh, Facebook and Twitter pages. Check the show notes for this episode. We'd, we'd really love to get in a final few questions that we can debate and discuss. Um, I just wanted to do a little bit of house we're obviously approaching the end of the year um, so we wanted to give a little bit of an idea of the schedule for the next couple of months so next year we'll be doing a sort of um, we'll be doing a question and answer but also a bit of a year in review so talking about the year that was in early childhood in 2016 you just said next week next year don't you mean did next I, week oh did i oh, is it the end of the year yet i'm, I'm struggling i'm getting it's getting <laughs> tricky towards the end of the year. next week will be our year in review episode and our q a and we'll also just have a really quick chat about 
what we think 2017 might hold for early childhood uh, education as well. Uh, that will be our final regular episode. We are aimed, we will then be taking probably most of January off as a bit of a break. We're all on various leave and we'll be in nice places during that time and we'll hopefully be back around about the first week of February. Uh, but what will be happening next week is the National Quality Framework Review, which has been dragging on for three years. We'll finally sort of, we'll finally have some public announcements after the COAG meeting. Um, so we we probably will we we won't promise but we we probably will jump on Skype and probably record a probably just a quick episode of our initial thoughts on that I I'm going to imagine there's going to be a lot to digest and look at and we'll probably do a proper focus on it in our first episode in 2017 but uh, it's going to be a fairly big change to early childhood uh, it seems likely so we wanted to make sure we'll probably have a little bit of something that can go out to people um, right at the end of uh, right right before uh, Christmas so uh, that's sort of what's happening for we us. do need to remember Liam that just because it's it's on the agenda for the Education Council doesn't actually mean that yes. it might get that's to, true they might get um, sidetracked by Pisa and Tim's and not actually you know, exactly get around yeah, to good. doing it Good point. So just look, keep keep your eye on the podcast feed, keep refreshing. We'll obviously let everyone know on Facebook and Twitter if there's another little bonus episode there. But um, yes, yeah, so next week will be our last episode for the year, But um, and then we'll be back in February, I think, because we're all enjoying ourselves far too much, and, and people uh, are listening to us and seem to be enjoying it. So there'll, there'll be far more of us going on and on next year. But uh, until then, you can always get in touch with us at any time. You can find the show on Facebook and Twitter at Early Edu Show. And as usual, you can find the three of us individually on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Liam McNicholas. And me at Lisa J. Bryant. And me at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. So thank you all again for being with us another week. We'll be back next week for our celebratory last episode of the year. And until then, it is bye from me. And from me. And from me. And from me.